Let me tell you something that's really neat this morning. I look in the bulletin. There's hardly any space left for the sermon notes. That's neat. Let me tell you why that's neat. It means that the Holy Spirit is, is birthing so many ministries here that uh, you're, you're going to start needing to bring your own tablet paper. That's great. I listen to the worship set, and there's plenty of time to worship. And, and we're pinched a little bit on the message time, but that's neat. Because we're praying for each other. And the body is ministering to one another. And that is exactly what God is all about. This is so great. So anyhow, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm stoked. Oh, was there supposed to be a scripture reader this morning? I'm sorry, David. Uh, are you going to be here next service? Come up and read scripture right now. I, I got all excited for that song. I was all excited with everything that was going on. I forgot what we were supposed to do. <laughs> this is such a tough scripture to find, Dave. Let me tell you where we are again. We're taking this year to find our purpose in life. And the first step in finding your purpose for li- in life is to find out why God made the world in general. And we have come upon the biblical, consistent theme that God has made the world in order to make a people for himself. That they might experience his love and the joy of living out his character. That's where we started. And then we noted that God, throughout history, had initiated covenants. And those covenants were the elements needed for intimacy with God. There was the covenant of security, the covenant of hope, the covenant of security, the covenant of boundaries, the law, the covenant of chosenness, the covenant, and so on and so forth down the line, the covenant of authority. Remember? Now, I want in the next set of messages to go from covenant relationship to what that means for everyday relationships. Because you know what happens to Christians when they get a little bit of theology? They go nuts. They get real mechanical and real stilted, and they start choosing up sides. A little theology is a dangerous thing. And I would like to go throughout the different everyday relationships we have and talk about how covenant, what covenant means to those relationships. Now, I want just to say at the beginning here, that I realize that among us there are many people who love categories. I mean, at least the chaotic world fits into some sort of system, and we love to build systems. That's been true since the beginning of time. This week in in staff, we have a guy on staff who's very good at at, uh, giving personality inventories. uh, He gives several different kinds of psychological things. and So he came into the staff, and he says, I want you guys, I, I, I got this new test that I've just revised, I want you guys all to take it so that we can type your personality. So we said, okay, so everybody took it, and our spouses took it, and so on and so forth. Nailed us. I mean, nailed us. The last category, though, is a continuum that says there is one type of person, they call them a J person for judgment, not in the sense that you're thinking, but simply they want the thing decided. They want systems. They like order. They like decisions to be made. And they don't care whether or not this decision costs a little bit more than that. They just want it settled. Then in this, on this end of the continuum over here, there is the uh, uh, P 
per, perceiving personality who's wide open. I mean, their motto is, why decide that now? Why not just hang out a little bit, see how this thing develops, and then if we need to make a decision later on, we can do that. Now, these people usually marry each other. You realize that, don't you? <laughs> don't know why that is. This is more oriented toward, you know, adventure and open-endedness and so on and so forth. Uh, by the way, my wife is over here. I never take my wife to buy a car because I did it once, walked into the lot, said, how much you really want for this car right here? And she said, honey, that's a dumb, that's a dumb question. Look, it's right here on this piece of paper in the window. <laughs> Write the guy a check so we can get started. i got four other things to do. I can't stand all day in a parking lot. She just wanted the thing settled. She didn't care how much it costs. She's much too busy to go out buying cars and have that be the whole day. See? Well, that's okay. You know, I need her to be like that because I'm a little bit more adventurous. Christians, by and large, though, they get a little bit of theology and they come all the way over to this end of the continuum. Let's decide right now what God's decisions are. Let's figure out right now who's chosen and who isn't. And, or, or if they can't figure it out, they get all worried. What if I'm really not? What if he's really not? Or, as I will tell you in a little bit, they take great joy in thinking maybe he's really not. All right. Let me talk to you about the image of God. How should a Christian relate to a non-Christian? A Christian needs to relate to a non-Christian as they were made in the image of God. Everyone was made in the image of God. But I don't think probably the image of God is what you're thinking it is. The early church fathers said that the image and likeness of God may be partly an attribute. And they, of course, were right. That man is the only one who has dominion. That man is the only one who thinks. That man is the only one who reasons and so on and so forth. But take it in a more poetic sense than that. Because when you define especially Genesis, that is poetry... In simply mechanical, systematic terms, you miss the entire point. Your hermeneutics are way off because this was not meant to be interpreted as a system or as a mechanic. And when you when you do that, you miss you miss it all together. I heard a, church, a cute story last week. I told Ron Morris told me this story. It's really cute, I think. Uh, this is one of those you know people die and go to heaven stories. Two preachers die, go up to heaven, and and. St. Peter looks at him and says, well, we don't have any trouble with you coming into heaven. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only requirement. Certainly we have a place for you, but we have a little problem. Your condominiums aren't done yet. And so you're going to need to go back to the earth for a while. Now, of course, we can't send you back to the earth as who you were. That would cause quite a disturbance. So why don't you choose what you'd like to go back as? Well, the first preacher said, you know, I've always wanted to be an eagle that soared over the Grand Canyon. Poof, he was gone. Turn to the second preacher. Now, he's a little, little skinny guy, a little kind of wimpy little guy. And he says, St. Peter, you're not going to like this very long because it doesn't sound right, but I would never misuse it or anything like that. But I just want you to know, I've always wanted to be a really cool stud. <laughs> Poof, he was gone. Condominiums get done. St. Peter calls an angel to go retrieve the guys. The angel says, how am I going to know these guys? And St. Peter says, well, the first one's real easy. Because he's an eagle just soaring over Grand Canyon. Second one's going to be a little bit tougher. 
because he's someplace in Minneapolis sticking out of a snow tire. When you go with technical definitions, you miss the entire point, don't you? And we have, a, we have a propensity to go with technical definitions. Let me walk through Scripture with you here. And go from Genesis 1, that we are made in His image. And, and look what it says that in Genesis 2, it says that uh, He breathed the breath of life into man. This is Ruach, Spirit. See? He gave us that which corresponds with Him. Now, going through the fall, everything was distorted. Our dominion was distorted. Our reasoning power was distorted. Everything was affected. Therefore, to say our image of God depends on any individual attribute would be a mistake because those attributes can be affected by sin in, in, in our. Sin is so radical and pervasive. But what wasn't touched was the capacity to have a personal relationship with God. You see, everyone stands in relation to God because God created them. But only some have relationship with God. And the image of God is the, is the capacity to have a relationship with God. That's the one thing that wasn't destroyed. In Genesis 9, 6, it talks about being made in the image of God. Man is still made in the image of God. It was not destroyed. But what happens to people is that they begin to chip away at it. In Genesis 20, verse 4, or Exodus, I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse 4, the first of the Ten Commandments says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness, listen to this, any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on earth, beneath or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, what's he saying? He's recognizing the tendency in us to not want our likeness to be one-to-one -one with him, but our likeness or, or, or our um, um, attention to be focused on something less than a relationship with him, an idol. Or, as the Ten Commandments became, a system of rules and regulations. And that's not what it was meant for. All of us were meant for a personal relationship, having that capacity. Let me go on with you to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image or form of those things, can never by the same sacrifices year after year, which they were offered, make perfect those who draw near. It's saying nothing has the capacity to bear the image of God except a personal relationship with God. And you got mixed up here. You, get, you began to get into a system of definition rather than a relationship of responsiveness. And then Jesus is sent as the image of God. Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Why? So that we can be reconciled, it says in verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. So that we can have a relationship. That image is for a relationship. What happens if we do begin to have a relationship with him? 
2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 18, I'll just read 18. It says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. That, well, let me, let me do this. I'm going to read 14 through 18. I'm not going to hurry. But their minds were hardened. See, they got into a system. For until this very day, the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is, I put in the word, only removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart because they're in a system instead of a relationship, see. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, there's a relationship, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transferred, transformed, I'm sorry, into the same image. From one degree of glory to another, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's what happens. Now, what happens if you get caught up in a system to your judgment of other people? James 3, 9 says this. It's talking about the tongue and about how evil it can be. And it says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. All right, now with that scriptural background, let me tell you what we do. When we begin to categorize, when theology precedes relationship, when system precedes love, we totally misinterpret the Bible. And we misinterpret the spirit of the Bible. Genesis was meant to convey the warmth and the personal attention of God. That is the great thing about our Hebraic background. They emphasize relationships. Now, I'm going to talk about our Greek heritage next week. But right now, I want you to know that nothing precedes relationship. One of my favorite accounts of creation is James Weldon Johnson's creation. Have you ever read that poem? He was a black poet uh, lived late 1800s, early 1900s. I love it. Remember, you'll recognize it when I, when I start, start. It says, God stepped out on space. Remember that? And he said, I think I'll make me, I'm lonely, I think I'll make me a world. And as far as the eye of God could see, darkness covered everything. Blacker than a hundred midnights down in a cypress swamp. Then, listen to this, I love this, God smiled and the light broke and the darkness rolled up on one side and the light stood shining on the other. And God said, that's good. <laughs> then God reached out and took the light in his hands and he rolled the light around in his hands until he made the sun. And he set that sun ablazing in the heavens. And with the light that was left over from making the sun, he gathered that up into the ball and flung it against the darkness, spangling the night with the moon and the stars. And between the light and the darkness, God hurled the world. And he said, That's good. Well, it goes on and talks about how God creates all the world. But listen to the last part. I love this last part. 
says God, then God walked around and looked around on all that he had made. Looked at his sun, and he looked at his moon, and he looked at his little stars, and he looked upon the world which he had made with all of its living creatures. And he said, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill to think. I love this. By a deep, wide river, God sat down with his head in his hands. And he thought, and he thought, till he thought, I'll make me a man. Out of the bed of that river, God scooped the clay. And by the bank of the river, God kneeled down. And there, that great almighty God, who had set the sun aflame and hurled it into the sky, who had hurled the moon and the stars into the farthest, most corners of the night, who had rounded the world in his hands, that great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a piece of clay until he'd formed it into his own image and breathed into it the breath of life. That's Genesis. It's not a system. It's not a mechanic. It's not everything just reproducing naturally according to its own seed. Everything else in the world God made by his word, except for man he made for his word. To receive his word. That they might become the children of God. Now, what are the implications of this? There are two very important implications for you. And I'm going to say them real quickly. First implication is this. That we are actualized. Our lives are actualized only in relationship. Now, that sounds very simple, but let me tell you, that goes against everything you're being taught these days. Because the human potential movement and the worldview of therapy... Now, let me make this straight. I think therapy is wonderful as a tool, as a clinical tool. But as a worldview, it stinks. It's lousy. Because you know what the goal of therapy is? Autonomy. Autonomy. As if we could be self-governed. As if we could be separated. God made us for relationships. And Aristotle, when he... When he began his philosophy, and there's a lot of Aristotle that I agree with, but when Aristotle began his philosophy, he said there is actual being and potential being. And the unmoved mover just naturally moves us toward potential being, so therefore actualization comes from individual development. And the human potential movement has picked that up and said the same thing. You are individually developed, and that's how you are actualized. And God says, oh, no, you're not. Because there isn't anything you can possibly do for yourself that I can't do better for you and with you. Because I love you. Let me tell you a story. 
I've known this story for a long time. I've, 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 never, I've always loved it, and I don't tell it very often. But it illustrates the point perfectly. Long time ago, this will bring back some memories. Remember those little pearl-like wax things called pop beads? Remember those? Way back when we were growing up. When we were growing up, that was the popular thing. Everybody wanted to get, all the little girls wanted pop beads so they could have jewelry. Well, there was a little girl who lived in a town, walking downtown with her mother, both being very ladylike, and went past the five and dime store. Remember five and dime stores? Wooden floors, remember those? In the window of the five and dime store was a beautiful necklace of pop beads, 59 cents. Little girl said, oh, mother, oh, I must have those pop beads. The mother said, well, honey, your dad and I just can't spend that kind of money just because you want some pop beads. I think it's time that you were responsible and earned your own money for these pop beads. And the little girl looked and says, oh, I'll do it. I'll do anything for those pop beads. So for the next weeks, indeed months, she worked little jobs, nickels, dimes, pennies for the pop beads. And she'd count her money every night. Remember doing that? You'd stack them up. Stack up the pennies, stack up, you know, you count them up and down. Finally, she had 59 cents plus tax. And her mother and her went downtown. She walked in that five and dime store and she laid that money on the counter and those pop beads were in a bag for about three seconds and then they were around her neck. And the two ladies went home. And when she got home, she walked in and said, Papa, do you notice anything different about me? Well, I see you have a beautiful necklace there, he says. Yes, this is my necklace. She went in that night to get dressed or to get ready for bed. Take her bath. She wouldn't take off her pot beads. Washed with the pot beads on, under the pot beads. Came out. Crawled up on her daddy's lap for her nightly ritual of him telling her her stuff and praying together. He usually sat in his chair right in front of the fireplace. Crawled up. He told her her stuff. They prayed together. Then her dad looked at her and said, Honey, do you love me? She said, Well, of course I do, Daddy. He said, then, give me your pop beads. Oh, she said, you silly boys don't wear pop beads. And she got out, ran off to bed. The next night, after being complimented all day at school for her lovely jewelry, she came home, kept those pop beads on all through her bath. All through supper, she was a little bit more quiet. And when it came time to go to bed, she came out in her pajamas, slowly crawled up into her daddy's lap, and her daddy told her her stuff and said prayers with her. And then he asked her the dreaded question again, Honey, do you love me? Of course I do, Daddy. And give me your pop beads. Daddy, I can't. She got down. She went off crawled into bed, cried herself to sleep. The next three nights, she didn't come to her daddy at all. Every night, she'd go in, clinging to the pot beads, and crying herself to sleep. 
And finally, she couldn't stand it any longer. She missed her daddy so. She crawled up on his lap and he told her her stuff and said her prayers with her. And then he said, honey, do you love me? Yeah, I do. Give me your beads. She pulled those things off and she handed them to her daddy and he threw them in the fire. She watched them melt. Then from his pocket he pulled the most beautiful string of real pearls you've ever seen in your life. He fastened them around his little girl's neck. He said, your daddy loves you too. You know what? Nothing we can earn, nothing we can build that is comparable to what God wants to give us out of a personal relationship with him. The second thing we need to remember, that those people who you have already decided don't fit into your system are potential family. If everyone is made with the capacity to have a personal relationship with God, and that is never taken away, that capacity is never taken away, we need to approach everyone generally as if they were potential family. That's exactly the tact we take. It's not believers versus non-believers. It's everybody as if they were potential family. That's the warmth of the gospel. Now, I know... But there are some people that bother you, and you just soon have them unchosen. As a matter of fact, you've pretty well consigned them there and may be a little bit glad of it. But God doesn't give us permission for that because they are potential family. Let me tell you a real true story. It won't take long. When I was in seminary and trying for my first church 22 years ago, I was taught that the enemy was always out to get the preacher. And so I went out to the first interview with my guard up, wanting to pick out the trouble spot, because I knew it was there. And I went through the pastor parish relations interview, and I couldn't really pick out anybody that was going to cause me trouble. But when it got to having a meeting with the Council on Ministries, there was about 15 people, and I went around that room, and there was one very strong woman and I thought, if there's ever a woman that's going to give me trouble, long term, it's this woman. I know it. I can feel it in my gut. And I started girding for it. Today, that woman is my mother-in-law. one of the finest people I've ever known. You understand what I'm saying here? We're talking potential family. And the more you think you've got it categorized, God has a weird sense of humor sometimes. You know that? Stand up. Let's pray for each other. And what is becoming the Northland Method? I'd like, to give, I'd like to pray for two uh, sections of folks today. If you are folks who have been taught that 
God is a system. And that a relationship with God really means working through a system. I mean, you do good things for him, he does good things for you. And you have been missing that personal quality of God bending over you like mammy over a baby. Would you sit down so that we could pray for you? So that you could sense the warmth and love of God? Would you please do that? All right, for everyone who is sitting now, I want you to put your hand on them. If you're standing, don't let anybody be sitting that doesn't have some hands on them. Okay, let's pray for them right now. God, it is not only our natural tendency, but it is our great temptation to think in terms of systems instead of terms of love. Would you minister to these people who are sitting down right now? Because they've misunderstood, they've been taught a system rather than a relationship. Would you go into their heart right now, just as you promised in Revelation, stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will come in. If you will go into their hearts and just love them from the inside, hold them, and let them know you're a father, not a system, we would praise you, and they would be greatly changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, stand up again. Now, this this is a few more of you. If you have a person in your life right now, who is really rubbing you the wrong way. And you have categorized them. Rather than earnestly prayed for them as potential family, that they might come to know the Lord, that they might come to be included in your spiritual family, if those of you have somebody like that in your life, would you sit down right now so we could pray for you? I knew it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you for being honest. There's a lot of us. Lay hands on them. Don't let anybody sit down without somebody laying hands on them, okay? God, change our hearts so that we can be accurate theologically and we can proceed our judgments by our relationships. Help us to have agape love, unconquerable good will toward those who we deem as obnoxious, but you may well deem as family. We pray for them. And we pray for those who are brave enough to sit down so that you may enter their hearts and remind them consistently to wish for the best for these people and to pray that they might be included in our spiritual family. We pray this in Jesus' name.